Hi there, and welcome back to Renegade Files. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, broadcasting from Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. This is episode number two, The Great Pyramid of Giza, Logic versus Legacy, and it is part one of our Egypt series. When I was a kid, I was fascinated by the stories, imagery, and mythology of ancient Egypt. The few times in school when we were allowed to choose our own subject for a report, I always picked ancient Egypt. I'm still amazed by the art, architecture, and the unique nature of ancient Egyptian culture. However, unlike when I was in elementary school, I no longer automatically believe everything a teacher tells me. Be that teacher Mr. Jenkins in a third grade classroom, or Dr. Elsa Schneider, PhD, professor of Egyptology at Ivory Tower University. The pyramids of Egypt, and other locations around the globe, pose some of the most enigmatic mysteries of our world, and their histories are filled with unknowns. Researching this episode has taken me on a journey through Egypt, through the pyramids, through ancient construction and deep, dusty textbooks, old records, papyruses that are falling apart, and any number of long hours of research that I'm happy to do. However, in addition to everything that I've done, I also have to give credit where credit is due, and I must mention Ben and his excellent YouTube channel, Uncharted X, from which I have learned a great deal about not only the Egyptian pyramids, but many ancient constructions around the world. I encourage you to visit his channel if you are at all interested in a methodical analysis of ancient monuments and artifacts. You'll find a link to Uncharted X in the show notes, so thanks, Ben. I hope you're ready for an adventure because this gets fun. So put on your cargo pants and leather jacket, grab your fedora and your bullwhip, and join me and the Renegade Files team as we embark on a recon mission to ancient Egypt and explore the Great Pyramid at Giza. The Great Pyramid at Giza. The Great Pyramid at Giza. Mainstream historians and Egyptologists tell us a romantic tale of pharaohs and well-cared-for workers who, without steel, the wheel, or electrical power, used ropes, stone hammers, and copper chisels to construct the Great Pyramid of Giza in 20 to 27 years. This timeline not only includes the design and assembly of this monument, but the bedrock foundational work, quarrying, and transport of materials as well. In this episode of Renegade Files, we employ our free-thinking minds to examine the evidence we do know about the Great Pyramid of Giza and compare those facts to the established narratives of the academic machine's megalithic assumptions. In a world where Egyptology degree gatekeepers, textbook manufacturers, and university tenures have carved into stone a most improbable timeline, The Renegade Files dives deep into simple math, logistics, and obvious reason to question the status quo. Is the mainstream story of the pyramids a tautology of self-supporting guesses? Or worse, a conspiracy to arrest exploration and halt the scientific method merely to avoid textbook editing, streamline curriculum creation, and cast into gold the process of harvesting tuition? Or is there something even deeper at work, like a frantic and vehement cover-up to hide ancient technology, free sources of unlimited energy, and a technologically advanced ancient civilization that could scatter to the wind our fragile notions of being the smartest and most capable of any generation to ever walk this earth? In order to chisel down this immense subject, this episode focuses on but one of ancient Egypt's staggering artifacts, the Great Pyramid at Giza. 
We begin with the official story, the interwoven academic answers concerning the major questions of who built the Great Pyramid, when did they build it, how did they accomplish it, and for what reason. These are the questions and answers you would have to memorize and get right on the tests along your way to getting an Egyptology degree from any accredited university in the world. Then, we'll explore some simple math, ask a few obvious questions, and investigate a number of inconsistencies and convenient leaps of imagination conjured to hold this official story together. My hope is that by the end of this episode, you will have a deeper appreciation for how truly astounding the Great Pyramid at Giza is. It is not my intention to pose dramatic speculations, but rather to provide you with intelligent information so you can recognize the insecurities and improbabilities entombed within the stories told by those who pretend to have every answer. The Official Narrative According to mainstream archaeology and Egyptology textbooks, the pyramids on the Giza Plateau were constructed during what is called the Old Kingdom of Dynastic Egypt. The names of the pharaohs of these times, as well as those periods of time when they lived and ruled, have been gathered from two sources. First, the Abydos King's List, which is a series of hieroglyphics in the Temple of Seti I. And second, the Turin King's List, a fantastically disintegrated papyrus document from the time of Ramses II in the New Kingdom. In both of these records, the history of Egypt that is described reaches back much further than the official narrative of ancient Egypt, in some cases over 30,000 years further. Some of these rulers described in these texts, such as the Shemsu Hor, or followers of Horus, were said to rule for 13,000 years, and before them, the Zebtepi period of rulers stretched back another 23,000 years. These records, the very same records that mainstream Egyptologists use to date and assign periods of rule to the dynastic Egyptians, describe Egyptian rulers in place some 36,000 years before the acknowledged first pharaoh of the first dynasty, Menes, who is recorded as ruling from around 3150 BCE. But rather than acknowledge the possibility that advanced civilizations could have preceded the established first dynasty of ancient Egypt, mainstream historians simply agree among themselves that the kingdoms and rulers described in these ancient texts, those that precede the rulers credited with building the pyramids, are merely mythological figures being described by the ancient writers creating the documents, even though the actual texts make no such distinction. The basic orthodox history of ancient Egypt, therefore, begins around 3000 BCE with Menes, the first pharaoh of the first dynasty. The first and second dynasties make up the early period. Dynasties three through six make up what we call the Old Kingdom. The third dynasty began in 2686 BCE. The Old Kingdom ended with the sixth dynasty around 2181 BCE. Following a 150-year intermediate period of societal division, we have the Middle Kingdom from 2060 to 1690 BCE. This was a 400-year period wherein Egypt was reunified after the preceding divisions of the first intermediate period. Following this, we have the New Kingdom, which lasted 500 years until around 1060 BCE. 
After another intermediate period of about 500 years, we come to the late period, which lasted until 332 BCE, followed by the Ptolemaic period, or the Greek-Roman period. The dynastic kingdoms of ancient Egypt ended when, in 30 BCE, Cleopatra committed suicide by snakebite, rather than be imprisoned, or worse, by Octavian and his conquering Roman armies. This was, of course, after Cleopatra slept with Julius Caesar, married Mark Antony, and poisoned her brother. But those are stories for another episode. To put into perspective just how long the ancient dynastic Egyptian periods lasted, we are closer now to Cleopatra's time than she was to the pharaohs of the Old Kingdom who we are told built the pyramids. And the first dynasty of the early kingdom preceded that Old Kingdom by over 300 years. Mainstream Egyptologists have concluded, and this is unequivocally the official position, that all of the monumental pyramids of ancient Egypt were constructed in the 100 years from Seneferu around 2613 BCE to Menkara around 2510 BCE. And finally, with regard to the Great Pyramid at Giza, the largest of the three main pyramids on the Giza Plateau, the official conclusion is that it was built by the pharaoh Khufu as his burial tomb in between 20 and 27 years. So, to summarize, that is the official story given to us by mainstream academia. The dynastic Egyptian civilization lasted from the early period through to the end of the Ptolemaic period in 30 BCE, a period of about 2,656 years. Any history described by the Egyptians themselves that provides records of kings and dynasties stretching back 30,000 years before this early period must simply be their myths and gods. And all of the giant pyramids, seven to be exact, the Step Pyramid, My Doom, the Bent Pyramid, the Red Pyramid, the Great Pyramid, the Second Pyramid, and the Third Pyramid, were all built in 100 years, all by a few generations of the same family. And now, we will drill down into just one of these monumental structures. The Great Pyramid at Giza. In order to investigate the relevant details we do know about the Great Pyramid at Giza, I think the best way is the simplest way. I'll go over the size, dimensions, and materials used in the Great Pyramid, then we'll get out the old calculator to see if the official story makes mathematical sense. After that, we'll look at a few of the most sacred discoveries used to attribute this structure to Khufu, as well as some of the resulting logic that has grown from assigning this massive accomplishment to his reign. The Pyramid's Size, Dimensions, and Material The Great Pyramid at Giza is about 480 feet tall, or 150 feet taller than the Statue of Liberty atop her base. Each main side is about 756 feet wide, or 252 yards wide, as wide as two and a half American football fields are long. The Great Pyramid covers an area of about 13 acres. At first glance, the Great Pyramid looks to be five-sided with the four triangular faces we can see and the fifth flat base of its bottom, 
However, upon closer inspection, we realize that the Great Pyramid at Giza is actually at least nine-sided. Each of its top side faces are actually two sides due to a slight concave crease that creates a central seam running down the center of each main face. You can see this in overhead photographs of the structure. And I say at least nine-sided because we can't lift the pyramid up to see if the bottom is also actually two sides. The basic structure of the Great Pyramid, as we see it today, is comprised of about 2,300,000 stones weighing a combined 6 million tons. These stones average between 2 and 3 tons each, and some of the construction stones are as large as 70 tons each. What else weighs about 70 tons? Well, 10 African bull elephants weigh about 70 tons. The American M1 tank, one of the heaviest tanks ever built, is five tons shy of the largest pyramid stones, the M1 tank clocking in at a feathery 65 tons. And there are some stones that are larger still in the Giza pyramid complex. The foundation that the pyramids sit upon is actually a leveled platform created by carving out enormous bedrock tiles from the higher side of the mount and moving them to fill in on the lower side. In this way, the Giza Plateau was leveled in order to construct the pyramids on solid level ground. Some of these foundation stones are immense, as large as 100 tons. In large part, this megalithic foundational earthwork is one reason the pyramids of the Giza Plateau are still standing to this day. Not only are these foundation stones megalithic, they are dry fitted together so precisely that a razor blade will not fit between them in many places. And they are not all perfectly square either, which would be the easiest way to fit together huge slabs of stone such as these. Some of these foundation stones have right angled tabs that fit perfectly into the inverse slots of the adjacent stone. Some have subtle angles that perfectly match the inverse angles of the stones they fit next to. And. Not only are these enormous foundation stones cut and fit together perfectly to form an essentially solid and level base for the 13-acre Great Pyramid, as well as the other two gigantic pyramids at Giza, but these huge stone tiles are cut in such a way that their bottom surfaces conform perfectly to the natural faces of the sloping, undulating, living bedrock they sit upon. In other words, the bottoms of these 100-ton stones, 13 acres of them under the Great Pyramid alone, are a mirror image of the natural shapes of the bedrock under them and form an exact match in what is known in geometry as the identity principle. As you recall, the established position is that the Great Pyramid at Giza was constructed by and for the Pharaoh Khufu in a period of 20 to 27 years. If we call it 25 years and assume that the builders worked 24 hours per day for those 25 years, we arrive at a figure of 13,140,000 minutes. 13,140,000 minutes divided by the 2,300,000 stones of the Great Pyramid's main structure gives the Old Kingdom Egyptians 5.7 minutes per stone. Let's be generous and call it 6 minutes. So. According to the established Egyptology Academia, Egyptians, working for Khufu, worked 24 hours per day, non-stop, for 25 years in a row, placing one stone every six minutes, 
these stones weighing an average of two to three tons, with some as big as 70 tons, each of them placed perfectly the first time without ever making a mistake, without ever taking a break, without ever pausing that work, without the invention of the wheel, without electrical or combustion engine power, using copper chisels and stone hammers to build a structure weighing six million tons. And this calculation of placing one stone every six minutes, 24 hours a day, for 25 years in a row, does not include the foundational groundwork and engineering undertaken to level a hillside and create what amounts to a bedrock floor tiled with 100-ton stones. Nor does this calculation account for the quarrying, shipment, and shaping of the stones the pyramid is made with. Some quarried from Aswan and transported to the site from 500 miles away. Nor does this one stone per six minutes account for the outer layer of finer, smooth, white limestone the Great Pyramid was originally encased in, the last remnants of which you can still see defiantly clinging to the pyramid's top section and along a few of the courses of the very bottom in places. In addition to the limestone used for the main construction, the Great Pyramid at Giza also contains other more exotic materials. Some 8,000 tons of granite are used throughout the interior chambers. The so-called King's Chamber contains black granite stones as large as 60 or 70 tons each. These granite stones are finished and fitted with remarkable precision. Long stretches of polished sides and right angles cut so perfectly and so utterly straight that we have only recently developed the instruments capable of accurately measuring their sheer perfection. And there isn't only black granite inside the pyramid chambers, but red granite, quartzite, white calcite, basalt, limestone. And each type of stone requires its own quarrying methods, has its own methods of shaping, has its own unique hardness, displays its own unique cleavage, or the way a rock breaks. All of this adds complexity of design and intensifies labor when we are talking about building what was the tallest structure on Earth for thousands of years. And none of it, not the foundational bedrock work, not the quarrying of stone, the shaping of those stones, not their shipment, some from 500 miles away, nor the unexplained reasons for working with multiple types of stone is accounted for in our generous summation that concludes in order for the Great Pyramid at Giza to have been built in the way and time insisted upon by the mainstream authorities on the subject, 2,300,000 stones from 2 to 80 tons each would have to have been placed one every six minutes for 24 hours a day for 25 years in a row. And that's if we totally give them a pass and say that the bedrock tile foundation, all of the quarried, cut, and transported stones, and all of the stones of various type, densities, and cleavage properties were already there when they started, waiting, presumably each numbered and lettered like an Ikea kitchen island, for the ancient Egyptians to put together without the wheel, without steel tools, and without any reason other than to build an egomaniacal death-wish tomb for their king. This is, I can confidently say, laughable. Other Mysteries of the Great Pyramid
In addition to the staggering size of the Great Pyramid and its enormous amount of material, enough material to build a two-foot-tall, four-inch-wide wall around the complete circumference of the Earth, which this claim is not a false hoax. I'll spare you the math on that one for now, but you can read through the calculations generated by the team at Ancient Code, and I'll put that research as well as more deep links into the Dark Intel files on Patreon for anyone who wants to check it out. But, not only is the Great Pyramid at Giza enormous, but there are other mysterious aspects to the structure as well. Maybe the most talked about is the fact that the three pyramids of the Giza complex are arranged in the same orientation as the three stars in the belt of the constellation Orion. But it is not merely the spacing of the three Giza pyramids equaling the three stars of Orion, but the fact that these stars move according to axial precision in a cycle from their highest point in the sky to their lowest point in the sky every 13,000 years. The low point of the three stars of Orion was last registered at 10,450 BCE, when those stars would have appeared each night, if the pyramids were there at the time, a possibility, at the very tip of each of the Giza pyramids. Between 2170 and 2144 BCE, the descending passage of the Great Pyramid pointed directly at Alpha Draconis, the north star of that time. The Great Pyramid is aligned to north, south, east, and west to within 0.05 degrees, an amazing feat by all accounts, and described as the most accurately aligned building on the face of the earth to this day. The mortar used to construct the Great Pyramid is actually stronger, by far, than the stone used, and while scientists have analyzed this compound, they are unable to reproduce it. It is described as being of an unknown origin. The eight faces are created by precise top-to-bottom creases down the center of each main face and make each side concave. This effect is only visible from directly above at both the spring and fall equinoxes and only at sunrise and sunset. The king's chamber inside the Great Pyramid is a constant 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Although the Great Pyramid is said to be the tomb of Khufu, there is no indication that his body, nor any of his riches, were ever located inside the pyramid, and the granite box inside the king's chamber, which Egyptologists agree must have been inside the chamber and the pyramid built around it, has no signs to indicate it was ever occupied by the body of Khufu or any person as a coffin, which it is described to be. There are no carved or relief hieroglyphics inside the Great Pyramid. Finally, dynastic Egyptians recorded pictorial histories of agriculture, births, deaths, leaders, prayers, and business records. But there are no undisputed records of the construction, use, or design of the Great Pyramid. This brings us to another chance to compare and contrast the evidence with the current viewpoints and interpretations of new discoveries the mainstream evidence that Khufu built the Great Pyramid. With valid arguments being made about the fact that there are no ancient Egyptian records of the construction of the Great Pyramid, even though the ancient Egyptians seemed fond of recording almost everything else, Egyptologists likely rejoiced at the discovery of what has been called just such a record. This record, a 4,500-year-old, very fragmented and eroded papyrus document, called a logbook by the French team of archaeologists who discovered the artifact in 2013. 
According to the interpretation of this document, it describes the completion of the Great Pyramid's outer limestone casing. And I quote, The limestone used in this casing, according to the logbook, was quarried at Tura near modern-day Cairo and was brought to the pyramid site by boat along the Nile River and a system of canals. One boat trip between Tura and the pyramid site took four days to complete, the logbook notes. End quote. So, once again, let's apply some of that pesky math that our scholarly Egyptology experts seem so loathe to include in their theories. Most of the original limestone casing that once covered the Great Pyramid has fallen from an earthquake and or been removed and used to build mosques around Cairo and the Nile River Valley. These limestone casing stones were bright white and fitted together with incredible precision, joints of one half of a millimeter between the stones. Some are still in place and can be seen along the pyramid base and its first few courses. These are often seen in photographs of tourists who are allowed to climb up onto the first little uh, ledge or so of the pyramids. You'll see those large, white, angled, perfectly smooth stones. Those are the original limestone casing stones, which covered the entire pyramid, made it smooth and bright white. The original structure contained 144,000 of these enormous, perfectly polished Tura limestone casing stones, some weighing 20 tons each. A standard city garbage truck weighs 20 tons. If we take a huge leap in conservative estimation and say that the Old Kingdom Egyptians could have carried two of these stones in one trip, then they would only have had to make 72,000 trips. And according to the interpretations of the logbook, as it's called, found by the French archaeologist, that was a four-day journey. So let's assume that they had a veritable fleet of transport boats for this job, say 20 boats. With 20 boats, each carrying two casing stones, a load of up to 40 tons per boat, we arrive at 3,600 trips for this 20-vessel flotilla. At four days per trip, we calculate 14,400 days. This equals 40 years which is twice as long as the shortest time frame Egyptologists contend that the Great Pyramid took to build. And this is just the time to transport one of the components of the construction, and calculated with huge concessions of a fleet of 20 boats, each capable of transporting a 40-ton load. Seriously, this is the kind of isolationist science we get when it is assumed that no one in the archaeology department will ever have a beer and a chat with anyone from the math department or, God forbid, the College of Engineering. Another bit of shaky science held aloft by mainstream Egyptology that I will present for you is from the conclusion and summary of an article published in the Journal of Ancient Egyptian Architecture, Volume 2, 2018, written by Frank Monnier. This article is one of the documents I discovered thanks to Ben at Uncharted X, who I mentioned at the start of the episode. In this article, entitled The Satellite Pyramid of My Doom and the Problem of the Pyramids Attributed to Senefru, Monnier attempts to reconcile his claims that all of the pyramid constructions attributed to the pharaoh Senefru could have been completed in his reign, despite what he calls widespread opinion to the contrary. I'll read from the conclusion section, and I quote, 
Contrary to widespread opinion, it was quite possible for Senefru to build all three giant projects at Maidum and Dashur. If one can accept that Khufu completed his huge funerary complex in around 27 years, there is nothing to say that Senefru could not complete his three pyramids in 40 years, following a similar system of quarrying, transport, and insulation of stone blocks. End quote. This kind of self-supporting conclusion where one academic theory is used to support another academic theory is what is known in logic as a tautology. That is, a statement composed of simpler statements and ordered in such a way that the resulting statement is logically true regardless of whether the simpler statements are true or false. And it is evidence of the lengths to which mainstream archaeologists and Egyptologists will go to protect the house of cards they have built with their attribution of the building of the megalithic Egyptian pyramids to the Old Kingdom. The casual observer may ask, why would established scientists go out of their way to protect one idea? I thought science was about exploring new ideas and being flexible and following the evidence and facts to dispel old myths and fantastical explanations. A quick explanation is this. If Egyptologists concede that their conclusions are wrong, and the Great Pyramid at Giza was not built as a tomb for Khufu within 27 years, and that all of the large pyramids of the Giza Plateau were not constructed within 100 years during the Old Kingdom dynasties of ancient Egypt, then there is a long list of other assumptions that crumble due to the fact that, as we saw in the Journal of Ancient Egyptian Architecture article, so much of the science is based upon previous conclusions, which are based on still other theories, and on it goes in a circular, self-licking ice cream cone of ideas generated by gigantic assumptions supported by minuscule clues. One example of such a situation is the attribution of the building of the Great Pyramid at Giza itself. When you look deeply into the assertions that the Great Pyramid was built by the Pharaoh Khufu, what you discover is that there is literally no conclusive evidence whatsoever that this structure was built by Khufu. Why then do Egyptologists insist that it was? The only evidence that Egyptologists offer up to attribute the construction of the Great Pyramid of Giza to Khufu consists of two discoveries. The first, a single stone figurine. This is a tiny statuette, just several inches tall and badly eroded. It may not even be a portrayal of Khufu at all. And it was found nowhere near the Great Pyramid itself, but nearer to the Valley Temple and the Sphinx. The second bit of evidence used to attribute the Great Pyramid's construction to Khufu as his tomb? The name Khufu, written in hieroglyphics with red paint inside the upper relieving chambers, first found by explorer Colonel Howard Weiss in 1837. Samuel Birch, a hieroglyphic expert at the British Museum in London, concluded that the painted markings were not hieroglyphic at all, but written in a semi-hieratic linear form of glyph shorthand that did not appear until the beginning of the Middle Kingdom in 2000 BCE, nearly 500 years after the reign of Khufu ended. Not only that, but the red paint writing inside the relieving chambers actually misspells Khufu as Raufu. These errors of using a shorthand version of a more linear hieratic lettering unavailable in Khufu's time, and the misspelling of this pharaoh's name in the inscription, coupled with the fact that it is written in red paint, not seen anywhere else in the Great Pyramid at Giza, make this evidence suspect at best. 
In addition to all of this, the painted notes were discovered by explorer Colonel Howard Weiss, who was under considerable pressure from his British investors to discover something of value. And before he found these red painted markings, inside a shaft within a pyramid that had been known about by the world for centuries, he had discovered nothing new in the entirety of Egypt. Also, the first relieving chamber was initially discovered by Nathaniel Davison in 1765, 72 years before Weiss discovered the chambers above it. This first relieving chamber had no inscriptions or hieroglyphics at all, just like the entirety of the rest of the Great Pyramid. But the chambers above it that Weiss peeked into were filled with writing. So, with these two minuscule and frankly weak bits of circumstantial evidence, a tiny statue that could be any number of Egyptian figures found nowhere near the Great Pyramid itself, and red painted writing of a style not used until 500 years after Khufu's reign, and that spells his name wrong, found by a desperate British explorer in the 1800s, Egyptologists conclude and will fight tooth and nail to defend the theory that this gargantuan monument was built by Khufu. End of story. My conclusions. So you have gone on a fantastic journey with the Renegade Files expedition crew to virtually explore the Great Pyramid of Giza by listening to all of the research and discoveries in this episode. You have heard the official stories and the alternating viewpoints posed by myself and others along the way. Now is the perfect time to follow or subscribe to Renegade Files so you can be sure to catch the next episode. If you're enjoying Renegade Files, a very easy and free way to help the show is to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you think we've earned it. Five-star reviews help Renegade Files reach new listeners. It only takes a minute, so thank you. If you want deeper access to the research and top-secret sources used to create the episodes, visit us on Patreon where you'll find tons of content, like the deep intel files for this and every episode. At Patreon, we also have bonus content, unreleased audio, behind-the-scenes posts, and cool rewards like t-shirts and shout-outs, so click over. You can read through the Patreon feed for free, and much of the content is available to anyone, whether you're a Patreon or not, so come check it out. What an adventure. This brings us to the summary and conclusion section of Renegade Files Episode 2, The Great Pyramid of Giza. I love ancient Egypt, and it's a subject that has much more to explore. As such, this episode is just part one of our Ancient Egypt series. Look for new episodes in the series as we cover things like the Sphinx, the other pyramids, the astounding granite columns and other stonework, the granite boxes, alternative theories of the pyramids as power plants, and much, much more. So, what do you think? Was the Great Pyramid of Giza built in 20 or 27 years as a tomb for Khufu in the Old Kingdom dynasty of ancient Egypt? Or did the dynastic Egyptians inherit these monumental structures from advanced civilizations that existed tens of thousands of years before the Old Kingdom Egyptians, as in fact the ancient Egyptians themselves say was the case? The Great Pyramid of Giza has persisted for thousands of years. With it, a long list of mysteries and unexplained circumstances. The sheer size, volume, precision, and construction could scarcely be accomplished even today. Is it possible that these monuments were created using technology that was lost with the cataclysmic events at the end of the last ice age? The dynastic Egyptians are not the only civilization to speak of a technologically advanced civilization that existed long before they walked the earth. 
Plato himself described a far advanced civilization that existed, then vanished, thousands of years before his era. What knowledge and distant history was lost with the burning of the library at Alexandria? Yeah, man, I still get anxiety when I think about that. Or what secret and powerful knowledge was not lost, saved from the Alexandria flames, then hidden from the masses to this day? I'm starting to think the library at Alexandria might make a really good episode. In addition to the logistics of designing the monumental structure of the Great Pyramid and quarrying, moving, placing the enormous stones atop a leveled and prepared bedrock foundation built using acres of multi-ton stones, there is other evidence of advanced technology virtually ignored by mainstream science when it comes to the pyramid construction and the pyramid complex. You can see clear evidence of mechanical circular saw marks on stones found all over the Giza Plateau. The granite stone box inside the king's chamber in the Great Pyramid was hollowed out with a tube drill that, according to modern stonemasons, would require a fixed drill using two tons of downward force. And the inside corners of this box are not rounded as a tube drill would facilitate, but rather they are perfectly square at exact right angles. And this granite box in the so-called King's Chamber is not the only box of this type. There are hundreds found in other locations around what was once ancient Egypt. Just the passage that leads into the Great Pyramid provides enough mysteries for decades of study. The main entrance travels down, then up into the Grand Gallery and chambers above. But this shaft also splits off and continues down through the descending passageway to what is called the Subterranean Chamber. This shaft travels through not just the construction stones of the pyramid structure, but continues on, below ground level, into the bedrock hillside beneath the pyramid. This uninterrupted shaft travels through what would have been the Tura white limestone casing stones, through the construction limestone boulders, through the massive bedrock foundation tiles, and through the in situ bedrock of the earth itself. The shaft is 300 feet long, cut at a 26 degree angle, 120 feet of the shaft is below ground level, and the entire shaft is remarkably straight. When you look at a cross section that illustrates the interior shafts and room of the Great Pyramid, it looks very unusual. I'll put links to a diagram of this in the dark intel files. The Grand Gallery is not a level and spacious room as the name suggests but a narrow, very high, tiered opening with individually removable ceiling tiles. The whole Grand Gallery slopes upward at the same 26-degree angle as the downward-sloping entrance shaft. The other chambers are offset and connected to the surface sides only by narrow shafts described as air shafts, and the overall mass of the structure dwarfs the oddly placed, shaped, and sized spaces within. The resulting structure looks much more like some kind of elaborate and heavily protected mechanism than any system of rooms for people to occupy, living or mummified. And as long as we're on the subject of unexplained mysteries, I have to tell you the bizarre story and turn of events surrounding Dr. Zahai Hawass, longtime and now former Egyptian Minister of State for Antiquities. He was first arrested and fined for using a state museum as the backdrop for a fashion shoot to promote his men's clothing line, a museum where no photos are allowed. 
Shortly after that, while he was still the key holder to arguably the most important archaeology sites in the world, Hawass became embroiled in a fake chamber scandal, whereby Hawass, on a National Geographic television special, staged a fake project when he submitted a mock-up model tunnel for the camera feed of a robotic probe being used to film live as the door to an as-yet undiscovered chamber within the Great Pyramid at Giza was drilled into and filmed for the first time. Much like the infamous Capone's Vault live television debacle of yesteryear, the camera revealed the chamber to be empty. But the scam was quickly identified when observers noticed obvious differences between the initial footage of the new shaft and doorway and the mock-up version showed on live TV by Hawass. This led to a fury of speculation that there was in fact evidence or artifacts or some other important knowledge within the newly discovered chamber, and that Hawass conspired to deceive the public by producing and presenting his false exploration of a fabricated tunnel. Very little mainstream news coverage of what I am now dubbing Chambergate seems to exist. However, the New York Times does describe Hawass's clothing line as, and I quote, a line of rugged khakis, denim shirts, and carefully worn leather jackets that are meant to hark back to Egypt's golden age of discovery in the early 20th century. So at least we have that from the New York Times. All the news that's fit to print. Let's also recall that Dr. Hawass is the guy who famously said on video that he would never waste his time reading a book by someone he disagreed with because he is a scientist. Their idea would be like sand would be gun in the wind. Have you never read the Orion mystery or the Keeper of Genesis? I don't, I don't waste my time. You know, I am a man, I'm a scientist. I'm a scientist. Classic. I don't know about you, but when I think of a scientist, I always imagine someone who would never waste their time reading a book. I do, however, always think of a scientist as that person who would wisely dedicate their valuable time producing a line of dime store Indiana Jones clothes. So I'm not saying I know how the Great Pyramid at Giza was built. I'm simply saying that ultimately, neither does anyone. And enormous academic departments can close their doors and close their minds to alternative research and fringe analytics and, and new ideas all they want. But it doesn't stop the ideas. All I'm saying is open your mind. Look at something with sober eyes. Consider a new possibility and move forward with your ideas rather than hold hands with a bunch of people that agree with you, spin in a circle and imagine that together you're all moving. Another criticism, and it's a valid one, and I sort of made fun of it when I talked about the departments having a beer with each other or not, is the criticism that very often historians and archaeologists are simply not equipped to analyze construction methods. Um, they're not engineers. They're not builders. They're not mathematicians. And you know what? That's true. But at the same time, do they not have a calculator? They put forth these theories that are based on just crazy ideas, and then they come up with ideas like, yeah, they wet the sand, and they moved a sled across there, and that's how they moved it. And then, okay, you know what? That's fine. That's how they may have done one thing, but it still doesn't account for the massive construction and movement and earthwork and logistics of 
materials that are tons and tons and tons in size. A ton is 2,000 pounds. I mean, we throw these word tons around kind of like big government throws the word trillions around, you know. Oh, it's 20 tons. Oh, it's 40 tons. Oh, it's however many tons. 144,000 casing stones on the Great Pyramid, some of them up to 20 tons. You're talking about 144,000 garbage trucks. What would it take to move 144,000 standard city garbage trucks by hand, without any machine, rolling it on logs and scooting it up a wooden ramp or what have you? It just, it, it's folly. And it isn't that I know, but I absolutely know what I don't know. So in the end, we may always look up at the Great Pyramid of Giza and marvel, wonder, speculate, and dream. What did it look like covered in perfectly smooth, gleaming, white, seamless limestone, ablaze in the desert sun? Did it truly have a capstone of solid gold, as legend tells us? Was there a time when everyone who saw it knew exactly what it was for, what it did for them, and how it was actually constructed? And what happened to those people, their ways of life, their hopes, their worries, and the dreams of their children? And what will become of us with our fragile smartphones we hold so dear, with our soundbite understandings and our warlike ways? Would we build the largest, most complex, megalithic, eternal stone building the world has ever known for but one of our national leaders today? The Great Pyramid at Giza is there for all of us to see. And despite all of the rantings of the most sacred Egyptologists, the most decorated PhDs, and the most gifted Egyptian antiquity minister fashion designers. Despite all of this, the Great Pyramid at Giza is there for all of us to see. It stands despite the winds and sands of thousands of years. Consider what it is, what it was, and why it remains such an enigma, and be grateful for the freedom to always think for yourself. Thank you so much for listening to Renegade Files. Look for the next episode in 10 days. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, saying, until we meet again, stay wild, alien child.